The Guardian. Welcome to Science Weekly. Alongside our regular non-COVID episode, we're continuing to explore the science behind the coronavirus outbreak, delving into some of the issues it's raised. Do keep sending in your questions. Head over to theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions. In today's episode, we're zooming in on the numbers and asking a question that's caused a lot of discussion in British politics over the past few weeks. Can you compare countries when it comes to COVID-19? It's an issue that one of our listeners from Sweden has also raised. Johannes asked us, what's the best metric when comparing different countries or regions and evaluating countermeasures, given the differences in testing, demographics, healthcare systems, mortalities, recovery rates, and so on? So can you really compare countries? I think we can certainly learn a lot from other countries, and we've learned a lot from previous pandemics. What I don't really agree with is having a very fine league table saying, you know, we're doing worse than Italy, we're doing worse than Spain and so on, because, you know, those death numbers are relatively similar. I'm Nicola Davis, and this is Science Weekly. So, Kit, the first thing that uh, I'd like you to do is just give me your name and affiliation, just introduce yourself so that we have it in the right format. My name is Kit Yates. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department for Mathematical Sciences at the University of Bath and I'm also the author of the book The Maths of Life and Death. So Kit, let's go back to the early days of the pandemic. So there was the outbreak in Wuhan in China and there was a possibility of it coming to the UK. We were relying heavily on what was happening in China. What metrics were we looking at to try to get a feel of what might happen here? So certainly the one of the most important numbers that was coming out of Wuhan that we used in our modelling studies to understand what might happen in the UK was this number that we're hearing a lot about at the moment, R, which uh, in mathematical terms we call the reproduction number. It tells you for each infected individual how many people they will pass the disease on to during the course of their infectious period. So it's a really important number because if it's above one, it means that each person is going to be passing disease on to at least one other person. The infection, the, the epidemic is going to grow spread and if it's below one then it means that the epidemic will die out because each person is passing the disease on to fewer than one individuals on average during the course of their infectious period so that's one of the really important numbers we were looking for and what were we learning from from what was happening in china what what was that number sort of coming in at in the early days there yeah, so the number that was used in, in Neil Ferguson's uh, Imperial College modelling paper, which is what a lot of the scientific um, advice that the government's been given has, has been based on, was a number of 2.4. Um, so that is saying that on average, uh, each person will pass the disease on to 2.4 people during the course of their infectious period, which means that the infection will grow and it will spread and in the initial stages, it will grow exponentially. So um, we were um, having to go on data from China, but we know that this reproduction number isn't perfect. It changes from country to country. And that's sort of really important to understand. So we know that R is not a fixed number. And as you've said, R varies not just from country to country, but within countries in different regions, different settings. What factors are playing into these differences and how easy are they to tease apart? 
Right. So R, as you, as you mentioned, R is not fixed. It's a function both of time and also of, of human social interaction and behavior and organization. So um, things like population density really make a difference. We've seen the worst outbreaks in the UK in places like London, for example, which has high population density, which makes transmission easier. There are generally three factors which go into R. Firstly, the transmissibility of the disease. How easy is it to pass between people? Secondly, the duration of infection. So the longer you're infected for, the more people you're likely to bump into and pass the disease to. And then thirdly, the number of susceptible people in the population. But we know that things like population density, whether you've got a rural or an urban setting, how socially integrated or segregated your society is, even things like seasonality, are people more likely to be outside or indoors, makes a big difference to this art. And it also depends to some degree on the degree to which social distancing is naturally built into your culture. So in the UK and in the West, we typically shake hands when we meet people, but that's not always the case in other countries. Sometimes it's greeting from a distance, which can help to slow the spread and reduce R. So it depends on all sorts of different factors. As the virus spread and the pandemic took hold, another number came to the fore, and that's the mortality rate. In the UK, we now have the highest number of deaths in Europe. Do numbers of deaths or even death rates paint an accurate picture of how well a country is responding to the coronavirus? I think it's difficult to say. I think the numbers that we're seeing at the daily briefings every day are not really helpful. I think we know that there's reasons for them to be inaccurate. They're certainly largely going to be underestimates, despite the fact we're now including deaths in care homes. We're definitely still missing deaths in the community. We know also that those figures are impacted by a lag. So firstly, a lag in reporting. We know there's also this dip on Sundays and Mondays due to reporting at the weekend. And we also know that there's a delay between people getting infected and people uh, unfortunately dying three weeks later. So those figures aren't super helpful. I think the figures that are more helpful are figures that NHS England is putting out, which are figures where deaths are aggregated by day of death rather than by day of reporting. Those figures have helped us to get an understanding of when the peak death time or peak death rate was, when the um, potentially the peak infection rate was back calculating from that. So those figures are more helpful. And they they can give us a bit of an idea of, of comparing between countries who's who's doing better than than others. But certainly in terms of very fine precision, who's doing the absolute worst, they, those figures aren't, aren't useful because people are reporting uh, the figures in different ways. What sort of comparisons are useful between countries? I mean, for example, you know, we know that Germany's had something like under 8,200 deaths compared to our nearly 35,000 deaths. So is, that, is there something there that we should be looking at? Or is it that it's just too complex to unpick differences? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. What I don't really agree with is, is having a very fine league table saying, you know, we're doing worse than Italy, we're doing worse than Spain and so on, because, you know, those death numbers are relatively similar. But you can definitely say that we are doing worse than, than Germany. We haven't had the testing infrastructure in place. We have had far more deaths than Germany have for a comparable size country and a comparable size economy. So it's difficult at the very fine scale, but on the bigger picture, we can absolutely look at countries like Germany and say, what did they do differently? How should we be adapting our strategy? When there is so much uncertainty over all the numbers and sort of the factors that influence them, uh, one of our listeners, Johannes, uh, was asking us 
what the best metric might be going forwards for comparing countries or regions and evaluating different measures? You know, is there something that we should be looking at, which perhaps gives us a better idea? I think it's a really difficult question to answer because I think we're every every country is testing and recording things in different ways, and so unless we standardise the way that people are reporting, it's very difficult to compare. I mean, just finding out the number of cases, for example, is a real example of that. You know, the United Kingdom has just been up until recently testing frontline healthcare workers, people who are sick, presenting at hospital with the disease, whereas places like South Korea have been testing everyone. And so looking at those two figures side by side is not really a fair comparison because we know that things are different in the way that those figures are being aggregated. We could try and look at things like fatality rates to see of the people who get a disease, how many of them actually die. And that might be a a metric of how well the country's doing in terms of how well their healthcare system's performing. But again, trying to find out those figures is also fraught with difficulty. A lot of these discussions have shown how much uncertainty there is, particularly when it's all happening in real time. What do you think this says about the phrase we've been hearing a lot about in the UK about following the science? It's a really interesting one. Um, Modelling pandemics in real time, I think, is really difficult. We're trying to scrabble to get our hands on the, the most accurate data, but we know that there are lags. We're not testing everyone. People are staying at home. We're not getting cases in the community. So trying to get an understanding of what's going on when there's inaccurate data is is really difficult. This phrase, following the science, I'm a little bit worried that it's going to be used uh, as something the government can hide behind if there's a post-mortem and it's found that things could have been done differently. The science can say one thing, but actually dictating policy on the top of that science is a very, very different matter. Deciding how you interpret that science is something different again. So you might be receiving the best possible scientific advice, but potentially not acting on it in the best possible way. What will you be particularly interested in going forward to kind of look at how the pandemic unfolds? I mean, things like I'm wondering about things like antibody testing. Could that give us some more useful numbers? I mean, things like you know the actual prevalence of infection in society and that, that sort of thing. Are, are these sort of developments things that could help us get a clearer picture? I think antibody tests have the potential to be a game changer in our fight against this pandemic worldwide. We need to be a little bit careful because we're not quite sure how much immunity is is granted once you've had the disease. Um, But we also need to be careful that the tests that we're using are as accurate as possible. And, And this is where sort of mathematics comes into it. Understanding that when you have a very low prevalence of a disease in a population, if your test lacks even a little bit of what's called specificity, that means it gives some false positives, it tells you you've had the disease when you actually haven't, then we might be releasing people into the population. They might go about their usual business, get infected, spread the disease to other people and potentially kick off a second wave of the epidemic in different countries. So for me, understanding the the specificity and the sensitivity, so how accurate these antibody tests are, is going to be really important as we go forwards. My final question here is just, we've talked a lot about some of the different measures that countries are, are taking to try to tackle the coronavirus. How easy is it to unpick the influence of different measures? So, you know, for example, in many countries, you will have a range of actions, you know, stay at home, wash your hands, uh, social distancing. How easy is it to unpick the impact any one of those measures has? So, 
it's difficult to do in real time for a particular disease to understand the impact that each of those measures is having. We do have good data from previous flu uh, epidemics, for example, which suggests that things like hand washing can re- reduce the reproduction number by up to three quarters. We know that social distancing can be effective. So we do have uh, information from, from other epidemics, but that information has been calibrated in hindsight. To some degree, we can try and recalculate what effect these measures, social distancing measures, lockdown have had on the reproduction number, for example, by doing surveys of people, asking them about how they've changed their activity from before the lockdown to to after the lockdown. And that can help to give us an estimate on how that's changing this reproduction number. And that's one way, at least, of, of estimating this reproduction number is calculating it early on, the basic reproduction number, and then changing that as we understand how people's contacts have changed So all of these things are very difficult to do in real time, but certainly I hope that we will take a lot of information from this pandemic and learn for the future and even from this first wave of the epidemic so that we can understand more about what might happen in the future of this evolving situation. Thanks so much for joining us, Kit. It's been great to have you on to talk about this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Nicola. Thanks again to Kit. You can find a link to his book, the maths of life and death at theguardian.com. And also, thank you for your support as listeners. At The Guardian, we believe that open journalism can connect us and bring us together when we need it the most. It arms us with facts and helps us to imagine a better tomorrow. By supporting us, you can help make sure that our open journalism stays open during this crisis and beyond. Visit gu.com forward slash support podcasts. Stay safe and see you back here soon. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.